It takes seven months to organize and construct it, yet only a single day to erect it. On the first day of the first month of Israel's second year of liberation from Egypt, the tabernacle stands complete. And you observe it from a little hill and you can see all of the Israelites in their tents and camping around this newly erected tabernacle. And there it stands like a gleaming jewel amidst a wild and wasted wilderness. Everything's dead. There's no life. But here is a gleaming, beautiful oasis of life. Here in this tabernacle, there's organization and the presence of God intersects with the lives of humans. It is a new Garden of Eden in miniature portable form given as a gift to the Israelites. You notice that to your right, Moses comes up to you and asks you to follow him. So you do, awed by the beauty of this tent, this structure, this tabernacle. And he leads you moving westward toward the front of the tabernacle. And as you come to the 30-foot opening, which is the gate, you realize that you are now retracing the steps that your ancestors, Adam and Eve, took on their way out of the Garden of Eden. As they moved eastward as they left the garden, you are now moving westward into the new presence and garden of God. And you move past the gate, and immediately looming over you is, a, is an altar made out of bronze as it gleams in the sun. And there you see a priest bringing up the carcass, rather carved out, of what you think is a lamb, but you're not sure. It looked like maybe it once was. And he's putting it on the fire of this altar and you can smell the flesh beginning to cook and you see the smoke rising. And then as you're walking around this altar, you notice on the side of it, the bronze is tinged with some red as blood is dripping down and pooling at the base of it. It's not a very pretty sight. And you choose to move quickly as Moses continues on. And then you realize you stepped in something soggy and muddy and look down and realize, oh, part of the sacrifice. I just stepped in that. And so you guys move, you and Moses move to the next item in that courtyard. It's this bronze basin and inside it's full of water. And you are so happy when Moses turns on the faucet and you feel cool water running down your leg almost too quickly as you want it to slow down and just completely saturate your feet in cleanliness. And Moses hands you a towel and you dry your feet as you're now clean. And then you move forward toward the tabernacle itself, a tent, and you see a flash 
of purple, scarlet, and blue as Moses moves the curtain and allows you to go in. The curtain which separates the outside from the holy place, the inside, the actual tent itself. And when you step in, it takes you a moment for your eyes to adjust to the dimness. But gradually you begin to take in that you're in a room about 15 feet wide and 30 feet deep. Its walls are overlaid with gold. And straight ahead, you see an altar. Oh, it's only about four feet high. And it's made of pure gold. And on this altar, you can smell the air as it's perfumed by frankincense and other incense burning on it. And the room smells intoxicatingly peaceful. And you move closer to get a better smell. And that's when you notice on your left, there is a lampstand made of pure gold, taller than you. And from this single lampstand are six branches carved delicately to look like there are almonds and blossoms in the branches. So that it almost looks like a golden tree. Yet at the top, there are seven lights and these lights flicker. And you notice that they're angled to shine upon a table that's on your right. And this table is made of pure gold. It's a small table. It's only three feet long. But on the table, the light shines upon 12 loaves of bread. And you can smell that it's been freshly baked. Then you notice Moses up ahead. He's grabbed the edge of a veil, this massive curtain, which reaches from one end of the wall to the other. And there is, again, blue and scarlet and purple woven. And the fabric is sharing space with cherubim who are on the veil. And as you look at this magnificent tapestry, you recall the cherubim who guarded the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could not go and take from the tree of life. And you're wondering, this veil is guarding the very life of God. And then you realize, I can't go in there. But Moses <clears throat> nods inward, and you think, well, if Moses says I can go in, how am I going to talk to my spouse and say, yeah, Moses went into the Holy of Holies, but I stayed back. Pfft, I've got to do this. So Moses lets me in, and I enter into a room it's a room called the Holy of Holies. And you see that once again, gold lines the walls. And it's a small room. It's 15 by 15. And it's 15 feet high as well. A perfect cube. And there in the very center sits a box made of gold. And on this box are two cherubim once again, facing toward each other. And Moses indicates that it's there above these cherubim that God makes his throne. This box, this ark is his footstool. And in awe, you take it in and you realize, I have never felt a more complete peace. I have never felt more fulfilled. 
And this perfect silence comes upon you. And as happens in these heavenly moments, you lose all track of time. Until Moses startles you back by grabbing your arm and pulling you out. And then you suddenly realize you just woke up in your bed. Because that was a dream. Because you can't actually go into that 15 cubit foot space called the Holy of Holies, which is a room inside of that tent called the tabernacle or the holy place, which is itself inside a courtyard 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, which is called the outer courts, which is then surrounded by the camp of Israel where the common people live, which is then surrounded by vast, dead, endless wilderness you realize that you can't go into that room. That's God's room. And you can't even go into the holy place, the tabernacle, the tent itself. Only priests go in there. And the outer courts, you can only go into if you bring an animal for worship. And so you wake up once again as a common person in your common place. But you see, nobody could even enter at this moment, not even Moses, because at the end of Exodus chapter 40... We see that when the tabernacle popped up, the cloud, God's presence, filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter. No one could enter. Now, the irony, I want you to see the irony of what has happened The presence of God dwelling with humans as it did in the Garden of Eden is finally given back to humanity in this tent in the presence of Israel in the wilderness. The Garden of Eden has moved into this tent and the joy of fellowship with God is beckoning, yet nobody can enter. You mean finally we're welcomed back to friendship with God and yet God has filled the thing and not even Moses, our leader, can step foot inside. Oh, it's tantalizing. It's frustrating. The fact that this is finally here. We've spent seven months building this thing, living under the shadow of Mount Sinai where God has been speaking to Moses and he moves into this tent and we can't even enter or approach it. Not even holy Moses. So there's a problem. How do we enter the presence of the king? How do we ascend his throne? That's the question which is left at the end of Exodus. No one can get in. What do we do? So Leviticus is a book about how to enter the presence of God. Leviticus answers how Moses and common people can now go meet with God. There's a complicated list of things, a series of rules, of commands, of expectations. And you read through Leviticus and you say, either Christianity is the most absurd practice on the planet. And I'm actually supposed to do these things. Read through it. You'll, you'll know what I mean. Or none of this applies anymore, and we are completely wasting our time by studying this book. 
which, which is most of our thinking, Leviticus. Now, I'll be 100% honest with you. When um, I really enjoyed teaching through Exodus, and that was really fun. And there's so many great passages in Exodus. I mean, Exodus finished, I'm looking ahead of Leviticus. I'm like, oh. Like, just, I don't know. Genesis and Exodus are so good. And then Leviticus is like, okay, well, we'll make it. And like, how few messages can we do in this book? Um, that's not why we're doing the first seven chapters, by the way. Uh, that's just, anyways. But then I start looking into it, and you realize Exodus closes with this, God is here, but no one can approach him. And then Leviticus opens and says, yes, the mountain to the throne of God is steep, and it's very inaccessible to common mortals. But here is an ancient travel log. Here's an ancient guide, a map to help you find your way up the mountain to the very presence of God. Sisters and brothers, worship is a journey into the presence of God. Worship is a journey into the presence of God. Leviticus starts with these words. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Now, in the English, I count one, two, three words. Called is the third word. But in the Hebrew text, called is the first word. It's karach. That's how Leviticus opens. Karach Yahweh. And of course, he's talking then to Moses. Karach. The tabernacle's closed off. We open Leviticus. God called. Worship happens when God calls to us, when God steps into our world, into our realm, and then we respond by making the journey toward his holy place. So let me show you something cool. We go through Exodus. Exodus is a story about Israel leaving Egypt. And they go through a wilderness. And at the end of Exodus, they learn to make a tabernacle so they can worship God. And the tabernacle is built. Then you skip Leviticus and you go to Numbers. Numbers is about how to tear down the tabernacle so you can move it and leave the wilderness and go to the promised land. So Leviticus stands in the middle of a journey in which you're moving toward Mount Sinai and then Numbers away from Mount Sinai. So Exodus and Numbers mirror each other in the fact that they are moving to and then away from Mount Sinai. Leviticus is in the middle of these, sandwiched in, in, in between this travel narrative of going to the tabernacle and then moving with the tabernacle. So in a sense, Leviticus, if you're looking at the books of the Bible, being the middle, Leviticus is the Holy of Holies. We learn to approach the tabernacle. Leviticus shows us how to get into the presence of God. And then in Numbers, we move with the presence of God wherever we go. More so, the very center of Leviticus, the very heart, is chapter 16. It's called the Day of Atonement, which we will get to. In which that is the day when the high priest can go into the very holy of holies, the very presence and throne of God. On that one day, humanity can go into there. 
So here we have, in the middle of Leviticus is the Holy of Holies. And Leviticus itself is sitting in the presence of God in the midst of a story where you're moving to the tabernacle in Exodus and with the tabernacle in Numbers. So here we come to Leviticus, and this is really, truly holy ground. This is our, this is a a word in, what am I trying to say? Ink and paper approach to a tabernacle long gone. Yet, yet, Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, is now the tabernacle of God. And so by entering into this tabernacle through Leviticus, we get to enter into the very heart of our Savior himself. But, but, okay, okay, great, but why is it littered with so many weird commands and blood and gore? So, yes, some of these commands, Jesus says, there's a new covenant. Those are old commands, which we're very thankful for. But what we have to remember is that these old commands come from the same commander, So that while we don't necessarily take everything in Leviticus as something to be practiced today, we look at the commands and who they came from and realize that there's a common denominator in every single command, including the ones we practice today in the New Testament. And we're looking in Exodus, I'm sorry, we're looking in Leviticus for the commander behind those commands. And what about this is he still calling us to practice? Not literally we're going to have offerings in church, but what about the offerings are we learning about God that we can continue to do today? So that's how we will move in to Leviticus. So Leviticus, really this book of all books? Yes, this book. I was maybe 19 years old. I am fresh out of high school. I am in the school of worship. And we are reading through books. Ah, of course. Didn't want that when I graduated, but I got more of it. But one of the books that I was assigned was Be Holy by Warren Wiersbe actually his commentary on Leviticus. I was absent for a stretch of time. I went on a trip. And so when I came back, my teacher said, well, you can make up your absence and your readings by outlining this book. Oh my goodness. So not only do I have to read it, but I have to outline it. I actually have to pay attention. Something happened. I learned that I can read and retain. (laughs) It was new. That wasn't a high school thing. And I began to outline this book, Be Holy, by Warren Wiersbe. And there he just goes through Leviticus and shows, boom, boom, God is calling us to a different way of life than the rest of the world. And I started to get excited about this alternate world Leviticus was calling me into. That I can be holy as God is holy. That I can choose a different way of living unlike the rest of the world. That to enter into the journey of worship is to go the other way from the world. And I started to think, wow, there's a lot here for me. Leviticus talks about holiness 150 times, 150 times. That's clearly a main thing through this book. Holy means to be set apart, to be used for a special purpose. And God wants all of us to be set apart for his purposes. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you have to have a halo 
You don't have to have some sort of glow because you've been sinless for six straight months. Holiness just means choosing to be set apart from everything else so that God can own you. We also need Leviticus because we need holiness, but we need organization. We live in a world that tends to fall apart, a world that doesn't have enough uh, structures to keep life going in a positive direction. And we also live in a world where everybody wants to be spiritual but not religious. Or, pardon Christians, we don't like the word religion, do we? Everyone wants to be spiritual, but they don't really want a relationship where they have to be accountable to another God. But Leviticus shows us the original organized religion of Israel. And we see that God, if we want relationship with him, he wants to be met on certain conditions. He wants to be met in a certain way. That there needs to be a little bit of organization in our approach, in our relationship with him. I cannot have a relationship if I just go off whatever whim I feel, go with my feelings and say, I don't like that part of God. I want this part of God and I want to practice following God this way, not that way. This is not a la carte. Relationship is about meeting the other and the other meeting you. And that comes with some structure. Leviticus shows us that God is still a God of structure and that there is a certain way he wants us to walk with him. And then ultimately, as we've touched on, we need Leviticus because we need guidance in worship. Worship is a tough mountain to journey up. We, we, we can start playing songs and we say, come on, everyone, let's sing. But that doesn't guarantee that you're worshiping. We can start singing songs like God, the only wise one, and be so absently mindedly singing along that we start singing God, the only wise guy. Wait, what? Uh, or God can do can suddenly become mountain do. I mean, we can just mindlessly, I literally thought these lyrics at one point in my life. I was little. We can literally have just such a brain dead approach to God that we just like the worship songs themselves can just kind of be like, heard this, done that. Or or we can read the Bible and be like, I already know what's going to happen. Or this is a boring part. We can get dull. Because true worship is a journey, and it challenges us upward to the throne of God. And we need help in our ascent to the holy throne of God. Leviticus is our guide. So, God calls in Leviticus 1, verse 1, from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offspring of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, we will go into five different offerings that God asks Israel to bring to him. Five. Much of them work in a similar manner with a few changes here and there. One is uniquely very different. So the first one is called the burnt offering. This offering is where you bring your animal to God and the entire thing, the entire animal gets consumed. Every single part of the animal. The idea is that you, the worshiper, are that animal and you are giving yourself entirely to God. So, read with me in 1 verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he, that's you, the one bringing the animal, 
He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the 30-foot gate in which you enter, and now you're in the outer courtyard, and the altar is right in front of you. So he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He, again, that's you, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons, the priests, now finally the priests get involved, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay and the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails, read filth, and its legs in that area, he, that's you, shall wash with water. Because God doesn't want that on his altar. And the priest shall burn, here's the key, all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is how Leviticus opens. Ooh, it's not for the squeamish. Um, this is not exactly one that you may want to visualize a whole lot. You might just want to stick to the words and move on. But this is not for the squeamish. And man, you talk about dirty jobs. Um, the Levitical priesthood would probably top my list of those, the things that they had to do. This is how Leviticus opens. All right, you want to climb my mountain? This is our first step. Offerings. Offerings. Now... The second is in chapter 2. This is the very different one. When anyone brings a grain offering or a cereal or a meal offering um, to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. So this is one that does not require an animal. There's no blood. There's no death. You are just bringing some of the cereal, the grains from your pantry, and you're offering it to God. Now, you shall, it says, pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So, that one, you just bring some of those grains, and the priest gets to take a handful of it, and the rest is, um, or, and that is offered to the Lord, and the rest is for Aaron and the priest so that they can have some food to live on. Yes, the worshipers helped the priests live. Thank you for your service and for guiding us to God. Here's a portion. Um, now this one is believed to often be offered along with an animal. So, for example, if you're giving the burnt offering, you would also bring a grain offering. The grain offering was usually not given by itself, but always alongside one of the animal offerings. Why? Well, as that animal burned on the altar, it was turned into smoke. And the smoke went upward. This 
was the animal going where you cannot go to the very throne. It was ascending something that you couldn't ascend on your own. You needed another to ascend for you. And with that animal going up, being you going before God, you would give the grain offering because when you enter before the presence of a king, you better have a gift. So the burnt offering is about the worshiper ascending to God and the grain offering giving him a gift as he approaches him. The third offering is even better. Chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, the peace offering, or the communion offering, or the fellowship offering, so named, because though we won't read it in this portion, you would bring your animal, just like the burnt offering, except the entire thing isn't burned up this time. The animal is cooked, not burned up to smoke, but cooked. A portion goes to the priest, a portion goes to you, and the rest gets cooked and uh, gets burned all the way up to God. So that what happens is with the peace offering, you get to eat a portion, the priest eats a portion, and God gets a portion. So that there's a table fellowship, there's a communion with God. This offering was the greatest. And here you can sort of see a picture, can't you? The burnt offering is where we ascend to the presence of God. The, the grain offering, we're giving him a gift. And then God turns toward us and says, thanks for coming. Come to my table and eat with me in the peace offering. So here we have this movement of complete union with God. But of course, life is messy. And there are other things that happen that aren't always so glorious. Like sin. <clears throat> Chapter 4. By the way, the portions that we're leaving off in the rest of the chapters, they're just rephrasing the same sacrifice if you're giving a different form, like a different kind of animal. You can read it, um, but it's it's really repeating a lot of what we've already read, just so you know what you're um, we're glancing over. Chapter 4. So, the fourth offering is called the sin offering. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. You go down to verse 13, you see, If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, the thing is hidden and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments they ought not to be done and they realize it when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. So if the priest sins, do this. If the people as a whole sin, do this. You look over at verse 22. When a leader sins, you do this. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things the Lord commanded you not to do, you shall do this. You see how he's giving scenarios for every kind of person because God forgives the sin of all, mighty and low, 
leader and follower. He wanted to offer something so that everybody can have access for forgiveness. So this offering is much like the burnt. Um, the animal gets burned and um, God takes that as um, a gift to say, okay, I, will, I give you forgiveness. Man, how many of these would our nation need? How many of these would our leaders need if this was still applied? How many times would you need this? The fifth and final offering comes in chapter 5, verse 11, verse 14, 514. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. So this time, the offering is actually valued in money. Why? Well, then verse 16, He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. So in this guilt offering, you bring the animal, you value it, and then you add 20% on top of that. So what this offering is for is not just common sins, but if you do something that hurts somebody or somebody's property and you need to make payment for that, you need to pay back, then there's 20% interest on what you're trying to pay back. That's the idea of this offering. So you're not only making things right, but you're also trying to uh, give a little extra. So that's the guilt offering. Now, in the sin and guilt offering, you might have noticed this phrase, if they sin unintentionally. And then I would read the commentaries and I would read, there was no offering for intentional sin. And I got scared. Because <laughs> I was like, I was the one, look, like, I've, I have lots of intentional sins. Where is that? There's got to be a sixth offering somewhere. Like, what do you do? I, now, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I have lots of intentional sins. Like, I know I shouldn't do this, but Ah, what the heck? Better say sorry than ask for permission, right? Um, sometimes it happens. <laughs> sometimes we're just like, I know eating too much is not right, but it tastes so good. There's no offering for that? You mean you can't be forgiven for that? No, that's not what this is saying. The unintentional sin is when somebody sins and decides, wow, I'm really sorry about that. I was wrong, I will bring the offering I'm supposed to bring. An intentional sin was when somebody sinned and refused to admit that he'd done any wrong, and furthermore, refused to bring an offering as God commanded. That's the intentional sin, when you realize there's a sin, and they say, I intentionally choose not to do the method of forgiveness God has provided. And when you throw off the whole offering system, you're basically saying to God, Whatever to you and your covenant and your wanting a relationship with me, I don't go that way. I'm going my way. That's what the intentional sin meant. It meant you are intentionally choosing to throw off any relationship with the God of Israel. Suddenly, I feel a little bit better. I don't know if I've quite done that. I'm always thankful that God takes us back when we say, I'm sorry, aren't you? Okay. So... This is where we start in worship. This is the entry point for 
entering the presence of God, climbing his mountain, getting to his throne room. I want you guys to go ahead. I know we're blowing next week, but don't worry. 9 verse 22. Chapter 9 verse 22. So we learn about the offerings. In chapter 9 verse 22, we see that Aaron and the priests actually offer these offerings for the first time. So that now the tabernacle has what God asked for happening in it. So we read this in 9.22. This is the whole dedication of the tabernacle to God. Um, the whole congregation's watching this because this is the inauguration. 9.22. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So he's on top of the altar and he's looking out toward the tents where all the people are. He blesses them after he offers the burnt offering. Or it says, actually, it says first the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. Then he comes down off the altar. But what I need you to see is that though we have the five offerings mentioned to us in the opening of Leviticus, we actually see a glimpse of the order in which they gave the offerings. First, the sin offering the burnt offering, and the peace offering. Brothers and sisters, this is our gateway to Jesus Christ. First, the sin offering. We would not know Jesus if it wasn't for his offering on the cross for our sins. That is how we can even enter into relationship. We have forgiveness. Or the New Testament uses this really, really fancy phrase called justification To be justified means just if I'd never sinned. It's this invitation to come to the God who forgives the sin that kept you away from him. That's the first offering. We are cleansed and forgiven. The second offering is the burnt offering. Remember, that's the one where they take the animal. The entire animal is burned up and ascends to God. Once we meet Jesus and receive his forgiveness for our sins, we are then asked to follow him, to give our entire lives to him, our talents, our minds, our hearts, our everything to him. The Bible calls this surrender or also that fancy word sanctification. Sanctification simply means to be devoted to. The burnt offerings where we say, I am all of me given to you. So we have forgiveness. We have that surrender and commitment to Jesus. And then the third offering, the peace offering. And that's where we have that oneness, that union, that communion with Jesus. When we realize he gave himself for us, burnt offering or uh, sin offering. So we give ourselves to him, burnt offering. And in the completion of that is a peace offering oneness because he's given himself i've given myself and that is a complete unity and that's when the people are blessed by the priesthood and that's when we experience the edenic blessings of the presence of god in our lives well that's a lot isn't it we have all these offerings and you know i don't want us to say okay guys Every week you got to come and choose one of five ways to approach God. That's not how this works. As you'll see, all of these offerings are basically very simple. There's just little details that change. And it works essentially like this. If 
for every offering. Let's say you are going to go, you just need a dose of God's peace in your life. So you're going to go to the tabernacle and you're going to meet with God through the priest. You select an animal. This one's good. God was asking for a clean animal, no defects. In other words, you can't go to your litter and say, that runt looks ugly and I'll never eat it. Let's take that one. No, no, no. God needed something that if you won't eat it, I'm not going to eat it. (laughs) So you take a really good animal and you bring it. So this is step one. It's called the presentation. You, the worshiper, present the animal there at the gate. And the priest examines it. Looks good. Then there's the number two. There's the representation. I can't ascend the hill of the Lord. I can't get to heaven, but this animal is accepted as pure and sinless. It can. So you put your hand on the animal and you now, it's called vicarious substitution. In other words, this animal is now me. It's my representative. Then third, you have the slaughter. You'll notice that it said the worshiper cuts the animal. Because I have to kill myself. That's how I get to God. There has to be a death to self. Because the only way we will ever be able to ascend into the presence of God is if we're willing to leave behind our lower self. And to let ourselves be, as Paul says, crucified with Christ. Dying to ourself. So you present the animal, it represents you, and then you kill it. And then fourth step is the burning of it. Now, this, it depends how much of the animal depends on which offering it is. But basically, we'll just go with the burnt offering. Um, the entire animal is now dissected and cut up. Which the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know me. Try my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Sometimes we need to just let God get deep inside. And that's what the true death is. True death is when we say, God, come and expose the parts that I'm hiding. Have all of me, even the darkness, even the things that I'm pretending don't happen or the things I'm pretending I'm really good at, but I'm really suffering and sinning here. We let God see all of it, even to the point of taking apart the animal, the, you taking every single part of you and washing it and putting it neatly on the altar. We need God to search every part of us. Let him in. And so then there's that force at the burning. And the fire eats it. Now, the word in Hebrew for burning the animal is not the common word that's used when it talks about a city that's burning or destruction. The word burn here is uniquely used for the offering. And it does not mean to destroy the animal. It means to transform the animal. See, the animal is not reduced and destroyed. The animal is transformed to smoke. And it ascends. You, remember, this animal represents you. You ascend. That's the fifth step. The smoke goes up to God. The sixth step is communion. If it's the peace offering, then you get to eat part of this. You and God having a meal. As the Psalm 23 says, you, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. 
And other psalms talk about eating at God's table and drinking from his river of Eden or delights. It's the same word. And then the seventh final step, once this is done and you've had this encounter and this experience, the priest then blesses you. It's called the benediction. Because no encounter with God is neutral. Anytime we step toward God, we, make the, we enter into the journey of worship, you're going to come out cursed or blessed. Now, some approach God and realize that there's nothing I want here. They have chosen the path of death and cursing. But others who receive and eat with God, they receive that blessing. The word bless first shows up in Eden. That's the idea. They're back in that paradise of union with God. And they leave with that blessing. Those are the seven steps of the worship offering. Jesus outlines these beautifully. Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus comes to earth. We see the presentation. Here he is. John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's been inspected. He's without flaw. He's perfect. He's sinless. And then he says, I'm giving my life a ransom for many. I am taking on the sins of the world. I am going to step two. I'm the representative for all of humanity before God. I am taking your sins on so that you can be considered clean. Like we, the worshiper, it becomes that animal. We become Christ. We become Jesus. He is in us. That's the incarnation. Jesus presents himself and represents us to God and God to us. The representation. Third, there's the slaughter. That's the cross. The whipping and the crucifixion of Jesus. He died on our behalf. Fourth, there's the burning. Again, the cross. Slaughtered and burned and just completely mutilated and killed On our behalf. Fifth, the smoke that ascends. This is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God. He's gone through the death and now he is transformed and he ascends. And then there's communion and he tells us, remember what I've done. Remember me, follow me by eating my broken body and blood and drinking my spilled blood in the grape juice. And then seventh, the benediction. Jesus is that promised descendant of Abraham to bless all the nations. As we walk through Leviticus, we are following ancient footsteps of Christ. And if we want to join into the journey that ascends the mountain of God and reaches the throne itself... We must understand the journey of worship. We must show up. We realize we're represented by Christ. We must die to ourselves. And in the process, we are transformed. Worship always transforms us. And we are able to ascend to the throne of God himself. We have genuine union and communion with him. And he richly blesses us inside out. What we need then 
if this is true, is participation. I used to imagine that Leviticus is a book of watching old priests do old things that no longer matter. And the worshiper would bring the animal and feel kind of bad and just kind of watch the priests do their thing. But I already read it for you. Remember Leviticus 1? If you want to underline the number of times it says he versus the times it talks about the priests, you will realize that you, the worshiper who brings the animal, is fully participating in this event. He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall lay his hand on the head of it. He shall kill it. He shall flay it and cut it. And then finally, its entrails and legs he shall wash with water. Brothers and sisters, this is not some sterile, clean, let's just watch the worship team. Let's just hear the preacher. Let's just root on the missionaries. I don't know who vacuums this carpet, but let's just cheer them on. Like, this is not what it's... True worship is a journey to the presence of God, which means God calls karach, and we must participate in what he's called. We stand up and say, all right, I have these talents. I'm going to offer them. I have this time. I have this life. I have this stuff. I'm going to offer it. We no longer kill animals because Jesus has replaced that dying for us. But we still have offerings to give And it's only when we give them and are willing to actually use them and dissect them and put them where they belong and use them in people's lives and touch people and get into interaction with relationships. It's only in that mess of the sacrifice that we're actually participating. So, we tonight get to take communion. That moment when we realize this is the new peace offering, the new eating with God and connecting with him. Jesus for us. But as we do so, let's ask God what we haven't allowed him to have. If we have allowed every part of us to be given to him or to be inspected by him, How would this mountain change if we had a group of Christians who chose participation over spectating? Who chose to ascend the mountain of God rather than just look up at it? 